Hello again and welcome to Romance Aloud, celebrating 60 years of the Romantic Novelist Association in the UK. I'm Ian Skillicorn and in this special podcast series I'm talking to RNA members about their own books and the authors from the Association's 60-year history whose work means the most to them. This time I'm delighted to bring you my interview with the very popular author Donna Ashcroft. When I spoke to Donna, I started by asking her how being a long-time member of a writing group had helped her to develop as a writer. I think being part of a writing group was a really important part of my ladder to getting published. Firstly, I think it makes you take your writing really seriously. It gets you used to sharing it. But also, you know, it means that you meet people who are as passionate about writing as you are. So I met, actually on my first day, Jules Wake, who's a very good friend of mine now. And I met her at at our Tring Writers Circle. And we both kind of had the same goal to get published and to get published as soon as we could. And we began to swap chapters on a weekly basis, which was just that little bit of incentive to make sure that we kind of were getting ourselves, our bums on seats and actually writing. And also it made us finish. I, I remember Jules finishing her book and us sharing a glass of fizz because, you know, there's a massive achievement just in writing that book and, and in getting to the end. And that gave me that extra incentive to make sure that I finished my book too. Also, through the writing group, I found out about the RNA. I think it was Melanie Hilton came to talk to the writing group about the RNA and about the new writer scheme, which uh, I, and I don't know that I would have known about it otherwise. So that's where I found out about it. Jules and I found out about it and we signed up. So when did you actually start writing romantic fiction? When I first decided about the age of 12, I wanted to be an author. I used to write romance then. And then when I went to university, I got very into Stephen King and horror books. And I started writing horror books, pretty dreadful horror books, actually. I never finished any of those. And then I came back full circle. And I mean, I've always loved reading romantic fiction. I was, I, I subscribed to Mills and Boone. I devoured romance because I love it. I love the way that reading a romance makes you feel. So yes, yes and no, because I definitely went through my I want to write horror stage. Well, you know, it's interesting because as I've been recording this series, nearly every author I've spoken to has said that growing up, they really used to love Mills and Boone. I love Mills and Boone. There are some incredibly amazing Mills and Boone writers. What I love about them is they're very fast, but they're also incredibly emotional reads, which is obviously part of what they try to get from their writers. And I think for me, the books do pack a real emotional punch. There's a real roller coaster there. So, you know, I think, yeah, I do love Mills and Boone books and I still like them. (laughs) Well, whether you're reading or writing, what do you look for in a romantic hero and heroine? I look for characters I like. That's really, really important. I like to like them quite soon, quite early on in the story. I like people to have flaws because that makes them more real. And actually, I like to know quite early on what, what it is that they need to achieve, what, what it is that they're going to have to change about themselves in order to be happy. For me, people that I like, that's hugely important. And that I believe, I believe in that I believe those people are real people or could be real people. And do you think a happy ending is essential in a romance or is there room sometimes for a more open-ended ending? I like my romances to have happy endings because part of the reason I read romances is because I like to be left at the end with that really warm, glowy feeling. And if it's open-ended, then I get frustrated. And if it isn't happy, then I I don't want to read it. (laughs) Because I, you know, for me, that's what I really need and want out of a book. 
I went to a very good RNA talk once about there's a science to reading and a science to how uh, reading something, you almost go through the experience, the love, the passion as you're reading. And so, you know, I love that experience and I like to get to the end and, and be left feeling like I've met the love of my life, not that I've lost them. So that's what I look for and like. Now, you've already mentioned the new writer's scheme of the RNA. How did you get from that to being awarded the Katie Ford bursary? Oh, I, well, Katie Ford picks different people to award the bursary. I don't know why she chose me. I think I was put forward. I know that there were different people put forward for her to look at and, and see if she felt that they deserved it. So I'd been a member of the new writing scheme for a few years and submitted a few books. Um, and then I literally just, I still remember it. One morning in September, I got this email from her saying, I'd like to award you this bursary. Um, next year, it will be announced. And honestly, I can't tell you how excited I was. It was for me, it was a big turning point, actually, for me in my writing career. Well, you've said that you wanted to get published as soon as you could, but it doesn't always work out that way, does it? How long was it from when you first had the idea that you wanted to be published to getting your first deal? Um, it was 10 years. I joined the New Writers Scheme just before I turned 40. And at that point, I was writing Mills and Boone, trying to get published by Mills and Boone. And I wrote my first book for Mills and Boone and delivered that to the New Writers Scheme. And it took 10 years until I got offered a publishing contract. And that happened on my 50th birthday. So it literally was 10 years. Right. And how did that happen? Did you send it to an agent? Again, it was RNA. I went to the RNA conference. And as part of the conference, you can request to have one-to-ones, 10-minute one-to-ones with various publishers or agents, depending upon who's coming to the conference. And I had a one-to-one -one with Natasha Harding from Bookature. I'd already sent through, I think it was the first three chapters with a synopsis. So she liked what I'd done, asked me to make some changes. And oh, it took a, a, a few months on from that after I'd kind of made the changes, sent her the book again or sent her the full manuscript. She then said she'd like to work with me. And I got my publishing deal. Two of your novels are available as audiobooks. How does it feel listening to someone read your stories? It's very, very weird listening to someone read your story. It's, um, it's a bit like listening to your own voice on, you know, on a recording like this. And in a way, you feel quite separated from it. But yeah, I mean, it's also something just incredibly exciting about having your book published in any format. It's quite an amazing thing. So yeah, very, very exciting. Your Christmas book, If Every Day Was Christmas, is doing really well in the charts at the moment. But earlier in the year, you released The Little Village of New Starts, which I've just finished reading. Could you tell us a little bit about that and the heroine, Evie? She's hiding away, really, on her family's farm after um, having a terrible time with love. And she doesn't really want anything to do with men unless they're very safe and she can't get hurt. And this American firefighter comes to stay on one of the yurts on the farm. His grandmother has recently passed away. And in her things, he's found a series of letters from someone who signs his name L.M. And he realises that that person might be his grandfather. So he decides to come to find his grandfather by reading these letters. There's also a letter within these letters that is addressed to L.M. So he wants to deliver that to the grandfather. And Evie doesn't particularly want to help, but uh, her grandmother's fabulously interfering and basically keeps throwing Evie into the path of Callum, my hero. 
It's set in a village called Lockton, um, which is um, obviously I've made it up, but it's in the Scottish Highlands. And what's great about it is you can get to the beach really easy. The mountains are close by. There's a fabulous community of people who all look out for each other. Some very comic characters, particularly Evie's Nana Agnes, who's got a parrot and a goat. A lady who runs post office, uh, Fergus McKenzie, who runs a local distillery. Um, and together they all help to track down the mysterious grandfather. There's lots of legends around this particular area. If you swim in the Lochan that is on Evie's farm with your true love, then you become pregnant within three months. There's lots of magic and mystery around the whole area. Um, and a lot of, I hope, comic value as well and warmth. And I get the impression that that's important to you to create a real sense of place and community in your books. Is that right? It's really important. And actually, before I start a novel in a, in a new place, I do literally sit down and gather pictures from the internet, create my characters, name everyone, draw a map usually of the area. So I have a really good sense of where I am when I'm writing. It helps to build a picture for me, but also I hope it helps to build that picture for people when they're reading the book. So, yeah, each of my books has a little folder filled with pictures and maps. Now, can you tell us which author you've chosen to speak about for RNA 60 and why have you chosen her? Well, I've chosen to talk about Millie Johnson. I actually fabulously was compared to Millie Johnson by my publisher on, you know, on the blurb to do with my book. And I started to read her book. So it's about two years ago I discovered Millie. And I absolutely adore her books. I became very quickly a total fan of hers. I love her writing style. I love the comedy in her stories. She also, um, as well as writing extremely good, quite complex stories, is incredibly good at, I love her, her characters are very warm and very real, but are flawed as well. So, I, you know, when you're reading one of her books, or I quite often listen to her books on, on audio book, you really do feel like they're there and they're alive and they're talking to you. Well, obviously, Millie's very well known as an author, but she's also well known within the RNA itself. Had you come across her as a person through your membership of the RNA? I had heard about her, and obviously, this year she won the Outstanding Achievement Award from the RNA. She's won Romantic Comedy of the Year, and I know she was a uh, she's an after dinner speaker and joke writer and a columnist and has written scripts. So she's got an enormous amount of strings to her bow. So I have her, I had heard of her, but it wasn't until actually I picked up one of her books and started reading that I just thought, oh my goodness, you know, I have really found um, a new author that I just absolutely love. Well, you've already said that Millie's characters can be flawed and that's a good thing. How else would you describe a typical Millie Johnson heroine? I think they're quite sassy. They usually end up with quite strong female networks of friends. I think Millie's very good at creating a sense of community, but she really champions the relationship of women. So usually what I love, particularly love about her books is that there's usually, even if it's not the beginning, although it usually is at the beginning, this kind of network of people that support and help each other and keep things real and say what they think. And there's always humour in her books. And just in the descriptions that she writes, I did actually write a couple down. Power can turn a frog into Hugh Jackman or teeth like an abandoned graveyard. It's the economy of the words, but her ability to create these very strong and humorous pictures that really draw you into the story. Well, I've spoken to Millie for the podcast. And as you've said, she's had many roles as well as a novelist, public speaker, 
writing the Purple Ronnie cards. I wonder if you think that those skills have all helped with her economy of words and how best to tell a story. I think it must have done. And also, obviously, the real humour that you get. They're light reads, although she obviously does manage to deal with some quite deep issues. They're very easy and light reads. But yes, I mean, the fact that she had to write cards and obviously there's a, a limit to the number of words you can put into that. I think you can really see that in in her descriptions in general. They are very economical, but they just, they pack a punch in very few words. And have you ever seen Millie speak? Were you at the event where she got her Outstanding Achievements Award at the RNA? I haven't. And I was unfortunately not at the event, although because obviously it was all over social media, I did watch it. And very like her books, it was uh, something that made me laugh and made me cry. Um, She's an incredible speaker. She manages to put a lot into that. But, you know, again, talking about very real, very important issues. So have you ever actually met Millie in person? No, I haven't met Millie, but I will be looking for Millie next time there is an RNA event. I will be seeking her out. When I spoke to Millie, we talked about her episode of Come Dine With Me. Have you seen that? Oh, I should have watched that episode. I saw that it, that in her bio. What did she say? Well, she won it. And she also said it had an almost immediate effect on her book sales as well. How amazing. Uh, well, because probably during the episode, you also sort of got some classic Millie. And, I, and, you know, even when she was speaking and the things that I've seen where she's been speaking, you can hear her in her books. You can hear that person in the books, that very warm and engaging and funny character. You've mentioned listening to Millie's books as audio books. Is it always the same narrator? And does she have that Millie warmth and style? Yes, it's always, I think it's Colleen Prendergast. I love her voice, but yeah, she does sound like the characters and she does sound like Millie would sound. Absolutely. And have Millie's books influenced your writing in any way? I think everyone you read really influences the way you write. But the thing that I particularly noticed when I read Millie's books is, as I said, it's that the warmth of the community, but also the female friendships and how much um, power they can have in people's lives and, and the support of other people. But there's also the fact that her characters are all very unique and each of her characters really stand out as people of their own. Um, It has made me think a lot more about my secondary characters and my communities and how I can make them stand out like that. Because somehow, you know, even in a few words, she can conjure up a real person in a a, a very clever way. But they're not stereotypical. They are real people that you could imagine meeting, sitting next to on a bus or in, you know, in the local pub. So for me, it's just made me think, how can I deepen this character? What more can I put in that just brings them out and makes them into real people? Well, for anyone who hasn't read a Millie Johnson book, which one would you recommend they start with? Well, I loved all of them. The first one I listened to was called The Tish Upon the Corner. But my favourite one is The Magnificent Mrs Mayhew. I adore The Magnificent Mrs Mayhew. It's about Sophie Mayhew, who is a politician's wife, who is vilified in the media. Um, Basically, she's suppressed all her own needs, has been brought up to basically be the trophy on the arm of a powerful man. And she's fallen into that role and and done it very well. But then her husband, he has an affair and she's basically expected to stand up and pretty much take the blame for the affair. And there's just that turning point where she, she just doesn't do it and she runs away and she starts to rediscover who she is Apart from one person, 
Uh, she doesn't really have anyone in her old life. And she starts to realise that she's basically not been living a real life. She's, no one really loves her. No one really cares for her. And she runs away and pretends she's uh, French but, and, and renames herself Pom and goes to live in a village, in a vicarage. And she, in the community, they, they leave her little parcels of food and she suddenly creates these wonderful friendships and it's a particularly amazing friendship with the vicar called Els Bells um, which doesn't progress any more than it should because obviously she's still married but through that she begins to realise how life should be and also begins to realise who she actually is and she isn't somebody who should be on someone's arm she is somebody who should have her own thoughts and her own feelings and her own needs and um, and it seeded into the story is her time when she was younger and she was at boarding school at St Bathsheba's, which is nearby to where she is. That was a school that Millie's made up in Yorkshire, where she was taught really not to stand up for the underdog, just to to be the kind of person that she's actually ended up growing up and having to be. But you can see that there are hints throughout it where she did go against what she was being taught. And that all comes out towards the end of the book as she gradually changes. And I just, I love it. I love her. I like the humour in it. And what I really enjoy in Millie's books as well is the kind of, she's not afraid to deal with quite gritty issues. She deals with, you know, death, abuse, divorce, infertility, but she does it very well. She does it with humour and intelligence, but she doesn't shy away from anything. She doesn't shy away from any of those issues. And they really hit and pack a massively emotional punch. I do say all of her books, I will laugh and I will cry. I will do both of those things. But, you know, that's what I think she's amazing because not only does she manage to pack in the humour and the, the community and these very real characters, she also weaves a fantastic story that kind of, you know, you just want to know what happens. You just want to know that these characters ultimately will be okay and hopefully will end up having the lives that they deserve. Uh, so, yeah, every book that I've ever read, I am left wanting more and left falling in love with the characters as well. Well, the nice ones, she also is very good at creating really, really horrible baddies. And I, I really enjoy horrible baddies because you can really get on board with hating them and disliking them properly. And she's very good at that. I mean, God, Sophie's parents, <laughs> her husband are just vile. And that's great because you have no uh, qualms about disliking them. And I do appreciate that. <laughs> We talked at the beginning about how you got involved with the RNA. Just to finish, can you tell us what being in the Romantic Novelist Association means to you and what effect it's had on your life? I genuinely don't think I'd have been published without the RNA. The support of the people that run it and, um, you know, I think I talked about winning Katie Ford's bursary and that being, for me, a massive turning point. I think all of the members of the RNA are supportive. So I think the RNA has had a massive effect on me and my writing. Firstly, I'd, I wouldn't be published without the RNA. It was a thing that made me take the whole thing more seriously. I loved writing before, but I'm not entirely sure I really believed that I would be or could be published. I wasn't sure that that pie in the sky was ever really going to be for me, but joining an organisation filled with so many published authors, but not just filled with those authors, filled with people who are happily they're being cheerleaders to people who uh, aren't published, supporting them, making them believe that it's possible. 
for me, that was the difference between being published and not being published. I think without the RNA, I would still be writing my stories and enjoying that side of it, but I wouldn't be published. So I think they're an incredible organisation with an incredible, incredible uh, membership and uh, the people who run it and give up their time to support other authors and other women and other men. Um, They're an amazing bunch. Donna Ashcroft, thanks very much. It's been really lovely to talk to you about your writing and, of course, the work of your RNA 60 choice, Millie Johnson. Thank you. And, dear listener, thanks to you too for listening. Join me again soon for another episode of Romance Aloud, celebrating 60 years of the Romantic Novelists Association. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a positive review. To find out more about the Romantic Novelists Association, go to romanticnovelistassociation.org. The show notes for this episode, with more information about Donna Ashcroft and Millie Johnson, can be found at windhamaudio.com forward slash RNA. That's Wyndham, W-Y-N-D-H-A-M, audio.com forward slash RNA. Take care, and I hope you'll join me again next time. Disappear.